I quickly came to the realization that a good business was really going to be just made up of two things. It was going to be the quality of the customers that I decided to work for and the quality of the people that I decided to hire to help me grow the company. So I always just really focused on those two things. And so I was really selective about both. Welcome to the Business of Doing Business. I'm your host, Dwayne Kerrigan. With 35 years in business and close to 30 ventures across 12 industries, I've seen a lot. Amid the celebrity allure of entrepreneurship, many exceptional entrepreneurs remain shadowed. Here, I team up with these hidden talents to unveil their challenges and successes. Dive in with me to unearth entrepreneurial gems, learn from our experiences, and get educated. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. I can't say how much I appreciate this. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Mark Bradley from a company called LMN. He used to be the owner of a company called TBG Landscaping, super successful landscape business. I want to just say this. If there is one person that I can think of like that comes top of my mind out of the gate who epitomizes this podcast, it's you. Hands down from what you've done with your life and where you started and how you know you've grown your businesses to i mean you have a current business that is humongous i'm not going to say how big if you want to say you can say but it's an unbelievable path that you've taken and i'm excited to have you on the show to for you to talk about that and i'm really curious to what we're going to get into and what we're going to talk about i have no idea yet but uh it's going to be fantastic so mark you started in business. I can't remember how old. You, we've known each other for over a decade, probably 13, 14 years, I guess now. But you started working at Hydro as, a, I think, a lineman. Is, is that correct? I'll let you tell the story. Yeah, yeah. Out of high school, I, uh, I ended up doing an apprenticeship uh, in the nuclear industry. It was steam fitting. Yeah, that was, that was kind of my start. I decided not to do the kind of traditional university path. And uh, for a short while, I thought maybe I would become a real estate agent, but being so young, that didn't seem uh, like a good idea that quickly. So I decided actually to, to do an apprenticeship. And my father was uh, uh, you know, involved in the nuclear industry, and he sort of set me up there with a, with a shot in that business. And uh, I learned a lot. It was a great experience. And I quickly kind of moved into project management as I was uh, working in that field. It, I just found that side of it more interesting but yeah I started out welding pipe and and doing all of the the trade work yeah and then you get to this place so you're working for the union basically you're you're a union worker right? yeah yeah absolutely yeah. great job like great career great certainty you be set for the your entire life but for you it's not what you wanted and you wanted to have another path and maybe you could just share with people like your story maybe even the moment where you went no I'm done because you started from fucking nothing. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I mean, things were going well. I was only 23 and uh, financially, certainly that job was paying really well. It was just not fulfilling. So there was really no issue with uh, where that would have taken me financially. I would have had a, a good career. You know, it's a, a $200,000 plus uh wage working in, in that environment. So not a bad job at all, but it's a job. That's right? a pretty good job. Um, yep. And for me, I just wasn't finding, you know, enough purpose in the work. I was just feeling that 
what we were doing each day was, you know, more or less to make money. And I just could not really feel the purpose of the, of the work and the people that I was working with were quite negative. And, you know, I, I really felt that the kind of circle of influence that, you know, the people I was spending my time with day to day, just, you know, were, were pulling me down. And so then one yeah, day I, I, I decided to, um, start a landscape company, which, uh, was probably, you know, a little bit shocking for everybody, but through high school, I had done some landscaping and I was out planting trees and uh, mowing lawns and doing that kind of work and working around the, the family uh, acreage. And I always felt really happy doing that work, being outside. I really loved doing small projects for people and it, it just felt like more purposeful work. I enjoyed the, the, the hard work and I also enjoyed the outcome, the artistic side of it, and also just dealing with people and, and seeing how happy they were when I was finished uh, the projects. But you give up like a hundred plus K your job. Tell me if I'm wrong here, because my understanding has been that you basically started your business with some shovels, a wheelbarrow, a pickup truck, and then just went out and started pounding on doors. And Yeah, that was it. So what had happened is I had taken on a pretty big project. I, it, I was young. Uh, I had about 24 employees uh, reporting to me. I had put together a, a bid for a really big package of work. And I had moved over to work for a contractor at this point that was working in the nuclear industry. I just started to feel like that was it. I had sort of gotten where I was going to get. And it didn't matter how big the projects were, how profitable they were. I got the same pay as everybody else and that didn't quite feel right. And so I decided just out of the blue one day, I'd ordered a brand new Corvette and it was on order. And it hit me one day that I just didn't want to do this. And so I went back to the dealer and I said, hey, can I trade this for a pickup truck? I want to, I want to get a truck instead. And one that has a little dump box on it and whatnot. So I changed my, my order entirely and I went into work and I quit my job and that was the start. And so at that point I lived in a small apartment in downtown Toronto. I had a, a little front porch and under that front porch was like a four foot crawl space. And that was kind of the first shop. And I was parking this big truck in this little single car driveway. And uh, yeah, they were, uh, you know, the, the landlord was kind of upset with how much stuff was there and whatnot. But yeah, my first year in business went in incredibly well and just kind of good timing. The, the market was booming and I was super passionate about the work. So, you know, working seven days a week, I was kind of used to that from the career that I had already been working in and uh, things took off quickly and kind of, we hit a million dollars in our first year. And A million dollars in your first year? Yeah. yeah Holy shit. Yeah. What year is this? Like how, how uh, That would have been 97. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. Holy smokes. Well, congratulations to that. I mean, that's unbelievable. So I'm curious, it's an unbelievable story because I mean, and it's at the perfect time of year, happy new year, by the way, but you know, we're into a new year early in 2024 and there's people that are kind of making their new year's resolutions either now or have, or need to. And there's people that are in exactly that same spot. So I'm glad that you're on the show at this time because it's a perfect reflection for people who are in a position where they may not find their purpose or, or necessarily their passion, or they've always been driven to do something else, or they feel like they've hit their limit. 
And you're a perfect example of somebody who leaves something. It was good. Like, it, I mean, you're ordering a brand new Corvette, you're 23 years old. There could be worse problems in the world for people. So kudos to you. And to do a million dollars your first year, what happened there? Like, how did how'd that happen? I started doing a few projects in this new development, and I was not expecting it to be that big, that fast. And uh, what I did a couple of smaller projects and then a couple of bigger projects. And before you know it, I had about 15 projects that were, you know, kind of in that 50 to $60,000 range. And it just seemed like one just kept sort of coming on, on the back of another. And so I had friends and family and uh, I was hiring all kinds of street kids, which, you know, ended up sticking with me for many, many years and becoming a big part of the business. And it was kind of a, you know, a real record year for me. I, I, I'll always remember that for sure. Can we just maybe dissect this a little bit? And the reason why I think it's important is because there's people out there that are trying to get that pump to jump over the fence or the leverage or the understanding, or they, they need some type of, you know, example that they can reflect upon to really kind of make that jump. Or maybe they've already made the jump and they're sitting with this business that's maybe not doing quite as well as they'd want. And so I have to imagine, you know, look, I don't think there's anything. I don't, I don't believe in luck. I really don't. Luck is just a, a, a process of doing the right things over and over again. And the, my acronym for luck is labor under correct knowledge. And it's just kind of going out there, going after it. The first year, if your work sucked, you weren't getting more jobs. So you clearly must have been doing something well. And then was there, did you have a process of prospecting for business? And what did that look like? Yeah. I mean, keep in, in mind that the time, right? 97, this is, you know, many companies didn't even have a website at that point. So uh, one of the projects that I did that year was for a good friend who was in the business of building websites. So he built me a nice website. Uh, I started to put job site signs out on jobs. I put the website on the trucks and that neighborhood just, you know, kind of led to uh, what became, you know, a a big business over time. I just, every job seemed to kind of come back to that neighborhood. It was unbelievable. Those first 20 jobs or so. And I really looked back and tried to tie 10 years of growth. Everything kind of uh, led back to the, that initial year with those uh, projects. And it was just referrals, honestly. I would always make sure that customers were happy I would always make sure that the, the job was something I was proud of. If, if somebody wanted me to build something that I couldn't look back at and truly be proud of, I just wouldn't do the job. You know, I would always tell people, like, I'm only going to take a project that I can actually really enjoy building and something that I'm passionate about. And if it's, if it's not going to be something special, then I don't want to do it. And, and so I think the quality of the work was there. I've always been pretty artistic, and that was really something that meant a lot to me that I could really put the effort into the design to, to really build something that I was proud of. And I think in that sense, I would get a lot better referrals. So, you know, within three years, I was doing half a million dollar jobs because those referrals just sort of, you know, you do a $50,000 job and it refers you up to a $100,000 job. And then I found the better I was at each level, the bigger, the bigger the jobs came. And, and, you know, by 
year seven, I was doing $10 million residential landscape job. So it just, it really compounded quickly. Yeah. I think just for perspective, uh, I'm not going to talk about your current business, but the old business, I think it's online. I mean, you were doing in excess of a hundred million dollars a year in revenue. No, that 50. 50? 50. Okay. So 50 million bucks in the landscape industry is a, I mean, you're top of the heap. So, but, and I think that this is not just about the landscape business, because I know you, you've been involved in other businesses. You're an extremely brilliant guy. I'm curious, can you lay some foundation on business today? You know, so you've already said a couple of times, like 97 times were good. Times are pretty good now. So people like, yeah, the interest rates are up and, you know, there's a little bit of uncertainty, but not to get into an outside conversation about what's going to happen with the economy and the, the Fed and the government, their, their, you know, their tenacity to keep this rolling. It seems like they're willing to drop interest rates in the future. We'll see what happens. I'm not making any statements on that, but there is some evidence for good times ahead. And I think there's a lot of people that can learn about your process, but I specifically, when you were talking about, you know, that going back to that neighborhood and how you grew the business, could you do that today? Like there's, I I feel like sometimes depending on the business, of course, depending on where your customer is, websites, virtual sales, like social media, all that kind of stuff absolutely has to be part of it, but just getting just referrals. Like it feels to me like we, I have a company that I think we're a victim of it. We do not do a very good job on referrals. And in 2024, it's one of our commitment to, to do a much better job at referrals. You know, we do so much online marketing and, you know, we got sales reps out in the territories and all that kind of stuff, but we do a piss poor job. I'll be honest with you uh, when it comes to referrals. So Maybe could you speak to that a little bit and then, and then how that kind of, it seems like that was a bit of a springboard for you. I had done a lot of reading in those early years in business and I was really fortunate. I think as I did a lot of projects, I would often get to know the people that I was working for. And I think just because, you know, being young and, and, and kind of, you know, they could see a little hustle, they would usually answer questions. And I was always pretty inquisitive and asking and whatnot. And I quickly came to the realization that a good business was really going to be just made up of two things. It was going to be the quality of the customers that I decided to work for and the quality of the people that I decided to hire to help me grow the company. So I always just really focused on those two things. And so I was really selective about both. And if I hired somebody that I didn't feel was right fit, I would move them out really quickly. But the people that I really believed in I would invest in and I would go above and beyond and I would pay them a lot more than the industry would typically pay. And I would make sure that they had benefits and pension plans and they would have, you know, company trucks and many things that others in the, in the industry wouldn't do, which made it easy to find the best people because I, I think we developed a reputation as a destination company for people that are working in that industry. And so always really focusing on the people side that I felt like was one side of, of my, my job as, as the owner uh, operator of a, of a small business. And the other side was just like really being selective about the people that I decided to work for. And so referrals was always a really strong component of what I focused on because I felt like if I liked the customer that I just finished doing a project for and they start giving me referrals, 
there's a good chance I'm going to like those people that they're referring me to. It's just kind of natural. And so, as I said, when I look back 10 years later at where everything had sort of come from, there was like a sort of nucleus of people that I started working for that I was still in contact with and that I had done many jobs for over the years that were all connected. And so like that, you know, six degrees of separation really was there. And so over time, every time I did a job, I just really made sure that when I left a project that that customer was incredibly happy with what we had done. But I also wanted to make sure that I could kind of count on them to be a, a brand evangelist for us. We didn't spend money on marketing, you know, the obvious you know, website and a few basics, but we didn't spend money to, to market. I kind of had two main ways of getting customers. One was uh, referrals and the other was outbound. And I only would use outbound when I wanted to move into a different market. Your referrals are not always going to take you into a different market. And so when I decided to really scale up my snow plowing and snow management business, I knew that we would have to do outbounding. So we would decide what area of the city that we were going to work in, what type of properties we were going to do. And then I just developed a really good outbound selling model where we would go in, meet with customers, you know, show them what we could do, explain our past, give them really strong refer references from other people that we'd been servicing and grow that way. So over the years, I've kind of used both sides in almost every business, referrals and outbounding, but very targeted outbounding. I've not been kind of a spray and pray type marketer. I've always really used a really focused marketing effort combined with some outbound sales for sure. I'm just going to recap a couple of things that I heard and that because I have a ton of questions to go inside some of these things. Two things that we first, you first kind of laid out were finding the right employees and then keeping them and then finding the right customers. And so just maybe I'll start with the customer side of things. It's like most people do not pick and choose or have the psychology around picking and choosing their customers. They're like, how do I feel the funnel? And I would kind of equate it to, I'd throw it in the scarcity slash abundance buckets. I'm interested in the psychology side of that and your perspective, because literally most, most people, and I, I don't, I know very few people who are like, I only want to work with certain people. I only, I think earlier you said, I only want to do projects that I'm proud of. Because if I can't be proud of them, then I can't rep it doesn't represent me. And so I'm, I'm not in. Most people don't do that. They take any project they can, fill their hours, do whatever. Let's maybe start with those, if we can, those. And maybe it's not, I'm labeling it as scarcity and abundance. I'm not sure how you kind of label it, but I'd be curious what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, I, I do actually use those terms quite often, uh, the scarce mindset or the abundant mindset for sure. But I think in this case, for me, it's more like I've never worked for money. I think that was something that I learned very, like from a very young age. Both of my parents came from, you know, very, very poor families. My father was a, raised by his grandmother and he was out on the street living on his own by 15. And, and my mom was out by 16 and, and neither have um, a lot of education. And so they always really taught me one thing that was really clear is just to do what you love. And I, I feel like if you're working with people or you're surrounded by people or you're working for people that you don't like being around, then you're not going to enjoy what you do. And so 
for me, it was always about enjoying what I do more than the outcome. So financially, I was always just comfortable with the fact that I would be okay with or without a lot of money. So I've never worked for money. It's just been sort of a, a measure. For me, I'm really big on goal setting. The financial metrics have always been the primary goals that I set. But the reason that I do that is actually so that I can measure growth. And that growth is just, it's not about the top line or the bottom line. In fact, for me, the thing I was most proud of in my landscape company all through those years was always that I could pay more. And that meant that we were more efficient. Early in, the, in my career, I wanted to, uh, to grow the business. And it wasn't for money. It was just for the challenge. When I started to grow the business and really started to look at the revenue and it was starting to really stack up, I started to notice that the revenue that I was producing per hour from each employee was actually dropping. And so my goals completely changed. My goals weren't top line revenue or net profit. I just changed my goal to revenue per hour. And I decided the industry that I was serving, landscape industry, was typically around $100 per hour with labor, material, and equipment all combined. And I decided that I wanted to really blow that number away, which meant that I was the best in the industry. So I just kept working on that number over and over and over, year after year after year. And when I ended up hitting you know, a top 100 in my industry in the uh, US and Canada top 100 list, I I got to 60th on the list, I think my first year that I got on that top 100 list. And I didn't care about the revenue number. All I did was look at revenue per hour, which all I had to do is look at the total number of employees and the total, uh, or that was total full-time employees and total revenue and just see exactly where I was. And to, I was most proud because I was number one for revenue per hour, which meant not only did the company make more money, not only could I make more money, but everybody in it could make more money. And so that was what I was always most proud of. And so it wasn't about making more money. It was about surrounding myself with these incredible people who wanted to be there, who would win alongside me. And so that made it a lot easier for me to always build and develop great people because they could afford to be there in an industry where you know most people aren't earning a living wage. And, uh, and so that people side was, was much easier for me to solve, I think, because of that mindset. Okay, I got to tell you, you're killing me here because you're opening up so many fucking interesting things that we need to be talking about for people who, A, are in business, would like to be in business, or who are helping optimize a business that they work for. And I'm going to say this. I mean, I've known you for a long time. You're in, without a shadow of a doubt, probably the less gr least greedy person I know and one of the most determined and focused business person that I know. And it doesn't surprise me that, you know, obviously honing in on revenue per hour is critical to find efficiency, right? That's your efficiency calculation, really. But, but I mean, and even when we met, the f I mean, I'm going to share the story and it's a little bit of a digress here and my apologies to, to you or to, to the, to, to the people listening, but I think it's really important that they understand the person that they're listening to is like you and I didn't know Jack. I didn't know you from anywhere. And we met at a 
uh, equipment, equipment yeah, yeah, equipment auction. Yeah. And so I'm buying some equipment for a project that I got going on that I don't know jack about. <laughs> That's a new, in, like something new I'm into. And you're selling some equipment. We just ran into you and we happened to be, I think, bidding on your piece of equipment, wasn't it? Yeah, you were, you were bidding on a skid steer that, I was, that yeah. was in the auction. And then you were like, oh yeah, that's my skid steer. I'm like, what, really? Like, I, think that, I, th- I feel like that was kind of similar to what the conversation was. It was a long time ago. but Yeah, that, I think that was it. You were, just came across as like super honest guy. But when you're buying, anybody who's bought used equipment at an auction, that's gamble. If you don't know what you're doing, sorry. If you know what you're doing, it's not a gamble. But for me, it was a gamble because I, I didn't know jack shit. But right from that first day, like weirdly enough, we happened to live, I don't know, within five miles of each other, probably maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we were, that, yeah, that was kind of practically funny. neighbors yeah. when you're talking about farming or whatever. But we just developed a friendship from there. I can't even say enough. Like, in, in of all the people I know in business, you're absolutely in the top five of the guys that I just think are, you know, vision, drive, leadership, determination. So a lot of things that you're talking about here are, a, a result of how you show up every day. And so I want people to get a lot of this. I don't know what I mean by this story, but I just want people to know that because I feel like I'm pretty finicky about the people that I like to associate myself with. And and I have a, a high standard and you fucking tick all the boxes. Like I look up to you, man. So I appreciate you. So, okay. You talked a lot about a lot there because you kind of moved into leadership, which I, I want to put a, a pause button on that. I want to go back to this abundance and scarcity thing because I understand that your parents, you know, you were raised not to really think about money. But a lot of people who don't think about money or don't focus on money or don't value money, they tend to fall into the scarcity bucket. They don't have a, what I would call a positive relationship with money. And uh, so I'll give you an example. I have a really dear friend who in the past has had his relationship with money. He always saw money as being not necessary, somewhat evil, if you will. Evil is definitely a strong word, but just giving some parameters there. And so as a result, once he gets money, he kind of gives it away. You have done that in the way you talk about really, and you have done this. I can legitimately say that this no bullshit when you say that you support your people and you, you know, pay them more than the industry. I know you do. I knew a lot of the guys that work for you. I know how much they respected you and, and cared for you and, you know, really appreciated your leadership. How did you like, what was the abundance side like for you or what advice would you give to somebody who's struggling to not look at their client and say, you know, I'll just take them because I have to, or I need to versus I get to, or I want to, what would be the tips that in maybe if you look back, especially at 23, somewhere along the line, you have to learn this stuff, right? And you have to develop it. It's like a, you know, you try it once or you, you know, it kind of is an idea in your head, but maybe you don't really believe it or you're not confident in it. And you got to kind of exercise the reps out to really make it part of you and integrate it. Yeah, I know exactly where you're going with that. It, and I have to keep in mind that's 25 years ago now. I'm I'm 48, so it's uh, you know I may be forgetting some of my my feelings and emotions at the time. But and and I and I do remember being very stressed about making ends meet and you know making payroll on uh, 
uh, each week and, you know, making equipment payments and paying suppliers on time and whatnot for, for most of my career, even when the company was in, actually more so when the company was uh, really big. That financial pressure is always there, I think, in, in every growing business. But for me, I think a lot of that came from just being really confident in creating a budget and creating like really clear goals for the business. And when I would take a budget, what I would always do, and I learned this very early on in business, I hired a consultant to help me out with this. And I did a lot of reading in my 20s. I, I could not read enough business books because I, I didn't go to, to university for a, for a finance degree or anything like that. So it was all self, uh, self-taught. And what I really kind of learned very quickly, everything that I would read would always point to you know, setting clear goals and really having strong financial awareness. And so I created a budget every year. And ultimately, that's what led me to build the software that I have today, which we'll, we'll get to. But I would create that budget every year. And then I would break that budget down into months and weeks. And I knew exactly how much revenue I needed to produce each week. And so when I decided to take customers, I knew how much revenue I needed to produce on every crew, on each department and in each month. And so what I do is I would just keep working on creating a pricing model that would deliver that much revenue. And so for the first few years, I would say I was kind of honing that. And I would say it was three to four years before I really got that flowing in the way where I had complete control in the sense that I knew exactly what I needed to charge customers. I would job cost every job so that I knew how that job was performing. And then I could always trace that back to a monthly goal that would serve the annual goal. And so at the start of the year, I would share that budget with my team. They'd know exactly how much revenue that we were aiming to earn I would share it with each crew so that they understood how much revenue they had to produce. And then, you know, those goals were then sort of cascaded throughout the company. And I just kept working at making that happen every day. And so the discipline kind of came naturally because of the awareness. And so, you know, I think that's why I'm such a big fan of goal setting, because if the goal's clear, it's easy to be disciplined because you know what you need to do. You know what success looks like. And I think I was fortunate enough to sort of stumble on that and, and seek enough help from some really solid mentors early on to know what that process looked like. And, th- and then it evolved. It was just something that I worked on, as I said, over those first few years. It's a tough balance between getting too granular and, and just staying high level enough. But I, I, I was funny. I was saw somebody, some thought leaders, uh, uh, Instagram post. And I think the, the stat was like 97% of people give up their goals within the first, I think it was five weeks of the new year, whatever it is. A lot of people give it up really quick. And, and, uh, and so I think we're really similar in this way. Like every year my team does a plan broken down in quarters, but if you're a business person, and you don't have a plan for the new year, whenever you do, it doesn't have to be January of the new year. It could be July. It could be September. It could be whatever. But what would you say has to be, what are the four or five things that have to be in a plan if you're going to develop it to maintain and keep on track? I think starting with revenue, it makes it 
much easier to know how to plan expenses. So, you know, how much revenue are you going to produce in the coming year? Then how much are you going to spend on labor or people to help you execute on that plan? And then what are your other cost of goods sold? And every business being different, you know, it could be many different things and many different businesses, but how are those cost of goods sold going to stack up to produce that revenue? How much overhead does the business have? And then, you know, what is the gross profit? And when we calculate gross profit and take away that overhead, how much profit is left at the end of the day? So it's a pretty simple mathematical equation. Once you learn it, you know, we've got revenue, cost of goods sold. We've got gross profit. We take away what whatever the overhead costs are and we're left with net profit. And so once I got really uh, clear on that, it became easy for me to understand how much I could actually pay my staff. And then it became clear on how much, how much I needed to charge for the work I was doing. And as I got better and better at that over the years, I was, that was what allowed me to kind of optimize that revenue per hour. And it wasn't about charging customers egregious rates. That was never my plan. It was always Let's get more work done every day by motivating the team to think and act like business owners. And let's get out there and make sure that we teach our staff how to make money and that we teach our staff the value of efficiency. And we teach our staff that we say what we do and we do what we say and we leave our customers happy every single time, regardless of what the bottom line profit is. And when we did that, my brother and I worked that way hands-on for many years. We worked with the crews on the, on the worst day, the dirtiest job, the latest night. Uh, they could see that through servant leadership that we really did believe in, in what we were asking them to do. And so, you know, I always say culture is just the way it is. You know, people talk about culture and there's all kinds of bullshit on social media about culture, this and that. And, <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the day, culture is just the way it is. And we didn't talk about culture. We just made culture. Just fucking did it. The guys had respect for what we did because they could see the passion. And those that didn't share that passion left. And those that did share it stayed. And they knew that we'd be fair. And so the way it was is, hey, we're hardworking, but we're fair. But we really do care for our customers. And we really do care about the employees. And so that was the culture. Man, I love your approach to culture. I, I do have a question, quick question about that. I do want to get back to the goal setting piece, thread that out a little bit. But the question about culture was, once your business gets big enough where you can't be in the business every day, at, or not every day, but or choose your days and you can't be in the job with the guys, how do you maintain that culture? What does that look like? Would you, what did you do? I would say as I scaled the business up, particularly in the landscape business, I would say that that was one area that I really lost uh, control and I, I learned some hard lessons there for sure. You start scaling the business up and, and you realize that the way it is isn't the way you want it to be. And, and then the culture is not there that you had developed. And certainly when I went from 100 employees to 200 employees in one year, you don't carry that culture on the way you had in the past. And so I think the best way to, to do that and, and what I've learned since in my career, I would say, and particularly the last 15 years running a software company, which is very different. And you know now most of my employees 
you know, I have 170 employees between uh, Canada and the U.S. and the Ukraine, mostly remote. And so creating culture now is very different. And so I think what I've learned over the years is the only way to kind of create culture is just to continuously share information and create a plan. And so this does take us right back to goal setting. When I create goals for the company, I create those goals at the company level, and then I create them at the department level, and I cascade those clearly down to each key contributor. And the culture really does rely on clarity on what the mission is in the business. And so I want to share that mission clearly. I want to make sure that they see the vision, that the long-term vision. I want them to understand our why as a company. But then I want to immediately tie the goals back to that mission so that they understand why the goals are the goals. And yeah, every year there's a financial goal and every year there's a people goal. And every year there's a goal to have the best product or service. And every year there's a goal uh, to be the best in the industry. And, you know, maybe there's a few other goals that come up this year. For example, in my company, I've got a data integrity and visualization. I need better data. The business is growing so fast that there's 55 different pieces of supporting software and there's data coming in from many different places. We have 9,000 customers with 300,000 employees and we've, we, we've got a lot of data that we need to manage. And so that adds in. But again, that's part of culture because when I've got this many employees and this many customers all producing all kinds of information, we need to visualize all of that in a way where we can do the right thing for our staff and for our customers and continue to build industry-changing products that really do sort of give people a, a completely different life in, a, in an industry, we need the data. And so that becomes a key uh, goal, which, you know, many people, I think, always focus on bottom line profit. And as a result, they make a lot of mistakes along the way because they don't actually identify what it is that they need in order to be great. And you don't just need profit to be great. You need great people. You need a great product. You need the best customer service. You need the best thought leadership. You need that data in your hands. And yeah, you need revenue and profit, but that's a byproduct of being the best at everything else. And so the goals that we set create the culture. And then the way that we cascade those goals throughout the organization, the way that we meet each week in our business, we have a executive meeting every week. We have department meetings every week. Every employee in the company gets a one-to-one -one each week. That's all happening in one piece of software where the company goal is cascaded down through every single meeting. And every time they update their individual metrics, it updates the company metric. What, what software do you use for that? Lattice. Lattice. I've never heard of that, actually. Yeah, it's incredible. Okay, so we're going to get into the software business. We'll talk about culture. We'll talk about Lattice. Uh, please remind me if I forget for the ones just to close, I want to close the loop on setting your goals for 2024. A couple of things that just want to discuss is, is maybe ask questions in terms of, and I know one of the things that I found super important was like, get the goal written down, you know, whether it's, whether you're doing it a yearly goal, quarterly goals, like I like to break them down into smaller chunks. 
so people can help them out. I actually have a question later too that we'll talk about, but how much of this is driven by you personally and how much do you have different manager levels executing this for you? And then you're working with them, coaching them through the process. But for those of the people who may have a business that, I mean, maybe it would be between, I don't know, one in five million in revenue, you're in it every day still, which is okay. It's a great business. If you have million, one to $5 million in revenue, you've got a great business and congratulations to you guys. And most of the people don't never get there. I think there's a couple of things for business people when you're looking at, you know, where you're spending your money. One of the things that we do really carefully is like we watch our yaya and we separate it out from our operational costs because so often business owners, especially small business owners, get confused with their yaya or lifestyle costs and they absorb them inside their operational costs. And that's really not what their business is doing. It's really not representing the efficiency of what your people are producing, maybe just what you're kind of taking out of the business. Uh, so I think that that, I don't know if you found that, if you ever did that, or if you found that important when you were smaller, certainly now you, that's not how big business works. And just the importance of committing to goals and even making them public, whether it be make this stuff public to your to your staff, make it public to your customers, like let them know what the hell you're doing and what your plan is. Because, uh, you know, I've I've said this a lot to people recently is like your customers, they want to be part of it. They want to feel like they're part of something. They will pay more for better service or better quality. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think starting with a mission and a meaningful mission, one that, that people can actually understand, uh, one they can remember. And I don't care if you can like read it word for word, just what is the mission? Like you should be able to say it like that. And most people can't, they don't understand what the mission of the business is and people in it. And uh, I don't care if people shorten it up in my software business. Our mission is really simple. And, and we've got a little bit longer version, you know, that we, that we put on a website, but the mission is simple. We want to help great landscapers run incredible businesses where they can really um, service their customers the way the customers deserve to be served, where they can pay people a fair wage, a living wage to take part in the industry. And as a result, everybody wins. And, and so it's a very simple mission. And so everybody in my company understands that very clearly. When we decide to set goals, we decide to set goals to achieve that mission. We build products to serve that mission. We get more customers so that we can grow the business so that we can build more products to serve that mission. When we go out and do marketing, we do that marketing to serve that mission. So it doesn't matter what we go to do, everything is tied back to that. But on the goal setting side, at the highest level, I think it's the way that the leader sets the company goals. And so I never set more than three to five for the company. I use objectives and key results, OKRs, it's called. It's a, there's a book called uh, Measure What Matters by, by John Doerr. That is a fucking great book. So anybody listening to this podcast, I, I didn't know you, uh, or maybe I did know you read that. I don't know if we've talked about game Game changer it's, for it's anybody. It's a game changer. He, like, it is a great concept. Measure What Matters by John Doerr. Yeah. If I don't have a copy of it, like in my bedroom, it's, it's definitely in my library, 100%. Yeah, it's a great book. So guys, go and get that book, Measure What Matters. The goal setting model there is simple, right? You set 
three to five goals, and each of those goals will have three to five key results. And so what you're doing there is really just saying, hey, we're going to create these goals, and then we're going to create some key results. And those are usually broken down quarterly. So the company level goals are annual. You know, by the end of the year, I want to do $40 million in uh, annual recovery, uh, recurring revenue. How are we going to get there on a key result level? I'll set five key results that need to happen by the end of the year in order for that to happen. But we're not going to get there unless we break that down into quarters. And so when I look at each quarter, it's like, what key result do I need in Q1? What key result do I need in two, three? And then the result will just be there waiting for us. We'll, we'll hit that number at the end of the year, but only if these key results are happening throughout the year. And so I think the clarity that comes from setting three to five meaningful high-level goals that then cascade down to each department and each individual in the company in a way where they understand at any given time, they only do things that contribute to those key results. And if they're doing anything else, it's a waste of time. And so everybody gets really clear on where to spend their time. And then the other thing that I do with that goal setting is I then break that out into something I call group flow, which is another great author, uh, Stephen Kotler. Uh, he's got a number of, of uh, award-winning books, but this concept of group flow is us basically creating a calendar system where everybody in the company is doing certain things at certain times that serve those goals. So we have block time for everything. So my staff work a, a four-day week, a 36-hour work week, and I expect them to have a 36-hour calendar. It's full. And that starts everybody in the company, starts at eight o'clock in the morning with, a, and keep in mind, we're on different time zones, but they're going to start their day the same way. They're going to have uh, a half an hour to prepare for the day. That's their email and their Slack channels and their calendar updates and their objective and key results updates in that Lattice software that I talked about. We use monday.com for project management. They're in there always updating the projects. So the start of every day, everybody's clear on where they stand with all of these tools. Then as we sort of get into uh, the day, everybody has uh, flow blocks or production blocks to do you know, working tasks, or maybe if it's customer facing, they're working with customers. If they're software developers, they're, they're developing software. Everybody's got their tasks. But all of these uh, blocks are very clearly linked back to those five company objectives. And so where everybody spends their time in the company, you know, hundreds of people, it's always very easy to trace it back to one of those five goals. And so what Lattice does is it actually cascades those five goals down to the individual level. So at the individual level, if it's a, a social media manager, what they're spending their time on, we know exactly where they're spending their time and how that's actually contributing to us growing annual recurring revenue or us growing thought leadership in our industry or us even potentially you know, building a, an industry must-have product, a game-changing product. And so wherever people spend their time, we can always draw it back up to one of those five goals. And so the combination of goal setting and calendaring and creating group flow so that people spend their time really building out things that actually contribute 
to the success and those five goals, that, that is where the magic is. Dude, that's awesome. If you, if you're listening to this podcast right now, well, if you hear my voice, you're listening, obviously. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, press pause. If you don't have a paper and a pen, press pause, go get a paper and a pen and write that shit down. Because that's exactly like, as you're saying this, like as I picked up my phone and I was making some notes, but it, this is where the rubber meets the road. I mean, so many people think, I mean, I have this, you get paid based on your results, not your activity. And this is the, this is where the rubber meets the road is you, when you kind of can bring that together on your calendar and align it with the key results of the organization Anything outside, you're right. Anything outside of those key results is- It's a waste. It's a waste. And so what happens when people spend all kinds of time working on things that don't actually serve the company goals is, you know, they busy themselves and they actually start to feel like there's no purpose in what they do as well because they can't measure success. And, you know, it doesn't matter- whether you're reading, you know, the Dalai Lama or Tony Robbins or whoever, you know, ultimately like incremental improvement is ultimately where, you know, humans find happiness and purpose. And, you know, when you've got a goal and you've got a calendar and people have helped you understand where to spend your time and how it contributes to those goals. And then you've just got a simple way of measuring what success looks like. And you've got a key result that you're working toward you're always seeing that incremental improvement. So your work has purpose. And when you believe in the mission and you believe that you're actually truly reaching your goal, you're reaching your own full potential and you're moving forward. And so is the company. And so are the customers that we serve. And in in my software company, our mission is, is just to help landscapers become amazing business people. And we want to change lives. We want them to have a better living. In an industry where the average profit is only one or two percent, we want them all to make fifteen percent. In an industry where all their employees live well below the poverty line, we want to change that. And so, you know, our government isn't going to bring the middle class back. No, there's no way. That's a dream. But we can with it with our technology. It's going to change lives, and that matters to my employees. And you know, it matters to the point where I said to my employees, "Hey, listen." I don't think anybody can afford to live on less than a hundred thousand a year. So minimum wage has to be a hundred thousand dollars a year in our company. And the only way that we can pay everybody a hundred thousand dollars a year is if you actually give me 36 hours of work that's contributing to those company goals. And so that's what we did. And I'll hire people at less than a hundred thousand, but within two years, they have to make a hundred thousand. And if I can't, afford to pay them 100000 after two years, then I'm going to let them go find a new career somewhere else because they're just not productive enough in that case. And so for me, I really truly believe that if I design a product and I design a, a group of people and I, that, that serve my customer and then I find the right customers, those customers will pay enough for me to pay my staff a fair wage. And that's how I've always run my business. Same way, you know, back in my landscape days, found the right customers who would pay for, for quality, pay for something special. So I could afford to pay my staff a fair wage. And I've just done the same thing. But that is unique. There's not a lot of, there's not many people doing that. And so I take my hat off to you, brother. Like, fuck me. That's awesome. 
how about we how about you tell the story about how you evolved your landscape business into a um, I'll let you talk about the software business I won't say the size of it but I mean you already said I think you you said you have is it uh yeah we have 9000 active companies using the software and we manage about 300,000 employees there's about a million to employees in in North America so about a quarter of the workforce that that works in the landscape industry right now a quarter of the workforce in the landscape industry we manage you, you manage yeah. Yeah. yeah wow that's uh, that I mean that is awesome i mean it's influence and impact at a next level in in an industry that is i would say um it's an industry that needs it it does need it and it's shocking because you know it's a 180 billion dollar industry in the US alone. So it's a massive industry. And but it's filled with employees who are taken advantage of and not taken advantage of by the business owners. The business owners too are taken advantage of because they don't have the financial awareness. They're technicians who started uh companies. And so they don't understand what they don't understand. And so they're actually all being taken advantage of by the consumers of these products and not intentionally. The consumers are getting a hell of a deal when they go buy landscape and nobody really is intentional about how that's done. And so what we try to teach customers to do in that business is, hey, just get more efficient. If you're more efficient, you can charge your customer a fair price and you can pay your staff more money and you can make more profit. And we do that by tech enabling their business and eliminating all the waste, training everybody on what waste looks like, how to set goals, how to cascade those goals, just like I've described. And then we just give them some technology that allows that to all happen very seamlessly. How do I really want to express this? It is a, a critical piece of many, many small businesses get started by a technician who is excellent at what they do. And they go out and start a business, but they were excellent at what they did, but they're not excellent business people because that's not what they were. They didn't study it. They didn't learn it. They didn't maybe have a mentor for it. They didn't have a, it wasn't in their environment or their circle of influence when they were being brought up. And so you see this so often where, you know, and I'll, whether it's in the landscape business, you're cutting hair, you're a mechanic, you're whatever it is. And, and you're out there and you decide to start your own business. And I would really encourage anybody who is in this situation or, or you've owned your own business and you're having trouble getting to the next level. I mean, education, I think to me, the theme of what I heard you say was education's critical. You are, you know, a, a, I think the premier educator in the landscape industry. Obviously, if you're impacting a quarter of the employees around North America. But people, you can find somebody in your industry that will do something. I'm not going to say it's going to be as powerful as what Mark's doing because I know Mark and I know, and you can hear the passion and in, 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 in his purpose and what he's doing, but you will find people who will be able to help educate you. And, and even at minimum, if it's a best in class kind of mastermind group of auto mechanics or you know, people peer in the spa industry, peer groups of some sort. There's an association somewhere in your industry that has a peer group program that you can 
get involved in and you can start sharing marketing and financial information and policies and procedures and all that kind of stuff. And it will help propel your business. There are answers out there and, and ask nine times out of 10, asking Joe Blow, who's, you know, kind of a, marketing himself on the internet or social the growth media, hacker the gro- on, uh, the- <laughs> on Instagram. Yeah, exactly. The growth hacker. Like they, they don't know your industry and, and, and yes, they may have some interesting marketing kind of slants to, to that might help you. Not, I'm not, I'm not pissing, I'm not pissing on that, but, but they're not peers in the industry where you can actually talk to them, share with them, you know, the ups and the downs, and they will understand where you're coming from specifically because they, if they haven't had the experience, they're about to get the experience. Look for someone that's been there, right? You know, two, two of the, the consultants that I hired early in my 20s in my landscape business, unfortunately, they've both passed away. Uh, but both of these people gave me an incredible amount of uh, understanding of budgeting and estimating and job costing, which that at its core, as I when I did start to develop software, that's what I built. And these were people that were in the industry for 40 years who were now teaching the next generation, and they were teaching with pen and paper. These guys didn't even open up computers, you know, the calculator and a, and a pen. You know, one guy used to show up at my office with one of those big pens with the four colors oh, yeah, on it. Yeah. And I just love this guy. And that was his technology was this big pen and, and uh, paper. But this guy taught me what I needed to know about overhead recovery and pricing and job costing. And so I put that into a spreadsheet right away because I understood how to use Excel. And once we had that spreadsheet, I had a system. And so as I refined that system, I talked about that earlier, that's actually what led me to build software. And, and you know what led me to build software? One day I was working for a, a very you know, wealthy person. He was a, a CEO of a, of a Fortune 500 company and I was doing a, a project for him that was worth many, many, many millions at his house. And he wasn't there for, you know, a year and a half while I was there working. And we developed a lot of trust, you know, when you're building a project like that. And when he showed up uh, and, the, and the project was finished, one thing he said to me, he said, hey, why do you do this? And I said, because I love it. And he said, I can see that. He said, but financially, like you could do a lot better in a different industry. And I said, well, I, I do pretty good. And he said, well, what'd you make on this job? And it was, you know, $8 million job. And I said, honestly? And he goes, yeah, how much? And I said, a million eight. <laughs> and he said, oh, good for you. He was happy right. about that. Right. And he said, but you were here for a year and a half. And I said, yeah, it's not bad. I did, I did five more jobs like this too, though. Like, you know, I'm doing all right. And he said, uh, you know what? Like, you need to find a way to make a little bit of money off of a lot of people and he said, you're going to make a lot more money. And I said, I, yeah, maybe, I, but I don't work for money. And he said, well, what do you work for? And I said, well, I love the outcome. I love working with my team. I love serving customers like you. And he said, but why don't you just find a way to do that for a lot more people? You'll impact more people and that purpose will still be there. And in the process, you'll build something bigger. And that sat with me for a while. It, I, I'd never thought of that before. And so around the same time, the business was scaling. 
And I was starting to get more and more employees and I was finding it hard to take that culture forward, just as you had pointed out. And so the, when the culture started to fall apart for me, that's when I actually started to decide to build software because I, I thought, hey, how am I going to cascade that, that real-time awareness of what success looks like unless I can put that in the hands of people? I was re really fortunate. I had been working for a lot of really large tech companies and some emerging ones. And I was very fortunate at the time to be doing projects for uh, one of the founders of BlackBerry and sort of had a good understanding of what was coming to market. We started building software knowing that, you know, apps were going to be a thing in the future. And that, you know, at the time we knew tablets were coming, you know, but there was no tablets. And so 2007, we start building this software and we we're kind of waiting for the devices. Um, and what I wanted was just in the palm of all of my employees' hands, I just wanted them to know where to go, what to do, what the scope of work was. I wanted them to know estimated versus actual hours. I wanted them to understand how many hours they had left on each project and how many we had estimated. That's all I really wanted. And I knew that if I could put that in the hands of many, many people, that it would be valuable. And so that's what caused us to build software. It was actually my urge to build, to, to set goals and cascade and share them to maintain culture that caused me to build software. The idea kind of came from this conversation with this customer. And, you know, it took me probably a year or so to do anything about it. But once I decided to build software, I, I went all in. Were you not building the software just for your own business? Or did you start it originally with the purpose of, you know, being able to sell it out to, you know, competitors, I guess, at that time? The, it would have been the, the idea to build it was for us to be able to continue to scale. But uh, that conversation I had had with him had sort of, had me thinking about doing something at scale that would impact a, a, a much bigger group of people. And so as we started to look at the cost of building software, I realized that it was too big of a project to take on just for my own company. And so we, we built a, a web application rather than a locally installed piece of software prior to that really being common. You know, people weren't really trustworthy, trusting the concept of cloud computing that was fairly new around 2007 you know a lot of people didn't trust putting their information Up know, on, the, on the internet at that point so but but we built it that way nonetheless because it's a remote industry we can't expect people to drive back to their office to price a job or to send a quote or to put a time card in and so we really did go at building it in a way where it was going to be sold to others um, from day one. Okay. So I want to really kind of dial in on your mindset of where you were, you know, cause you kind of talked about there where you culture kind of got a little out of uh, off the track for you. I'd love to talk about, you know, any emotions and frustrations as a business owner of where that kind of brought you to. And then that whole shift of, of moving towards the, you know, kind of getting a little deeper on where it moved you towards the software and the whole strategy and the shift and how that kind of rolled out. And then I'd love to just talk about what you're doing in the software business. 
Like we're an hour and 10 minutes into this already. So we're probably going to do a two part, uh, a podcast of just kind of pre-framing and warning the listener here that this is probably going to go two parts for the first time of any podcast we've ever done. So we're going to just take a real quick pause, let you kind of just kind of maybe dial in where you want to take us on, on those things uh, that I laid out. And, and I mean, dude, this is like the information you're giving people here it, it is so practical, so good, so executable. And there's so many people not doing it. And I know they're not doing it because a, I talk to them, we get the feedback, we get lots of emails coming in. And there's, there was times in my, you know, you talked about mentorship. Like I've had probably four really solid mentors. You know, I could maybe throw a fifth in there, but, but four really solid mentors that made a significant shift in my thinking and business. And I would not be where I am in, you know, in business and, and have, you know, kind of done some of the things that I've done if I had not had that mentorship and that guidance. And so I will say this last piece where you talked about your mentors and, and I know you've been, you know, that's been pivotal for you guys. There are people in your industry that will mentor you. Like, don't you think like there's, there's, I don't think there's an industry out there that you cannot go out and find a mentor. They're everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the coaching industry has maybe gone too big. Uh, I'm a little skeptical of of some coaches. So yeah, well, I, I, I always try to say, like, be careful who you pick. Make sure that they've actually done what it is you want to do. Mm-hmm. I will not take advice from somebody who has not already walked in the shoes I want to be in. hundred percent. And so be careful who you choose. But they are available in every industry. There's many, many people who have made it who take more pleasure in helping other people get there than continuing on that road themselves. And, yeah. and, and for that reason, I know they're there. hundred percent. And I know that, and I'm not actually referring to online coaches. I'm referring to people true who mentors. have done it. Yeah. True mentors. Yeah, true men. You know, like having the cojones, which I have done, walking into somebody's business going, I admire your business. I'm in the same business and I would love to take you for lunch to pick your brain. And you guys, you'll be surprised at how many people, once they've become successful, what else is there? It, it, what is left is to leave a legacy and to help influence the next generation. And, and that's what people want to do. And, but, and I, you know, my advice around this when you're, if, but my advice on this, and, and I don't know if you'd chime in on it, is that when you're asking for, you know, mentorship, if my mentors told me to eat pineapple and that would fix my business, I stocked up on pineapple. You know, I mean, I'm kidding, but it's like, I mean, I listened to what they did. I tried it. You know, I, I didn't pre-frame that, you know, there's, I mean, I can, I can remember an incident. One of my early mentors uh, actually was also was a friend of my father's super successful guy. His name was Harold Cunningham. Really successful man. He used to tell me to do shit and I'd be like, okay. Like, and I could, I remember, I can instantly recall right now remembering Fuck, this old guy, he doesn't understand the new times or whatever it is. Like I always had a story about, you know, what, why it wouldn't work, but I always went, okay, I'm going to go do it. Like no matter what I did it because number one, I felt I owed him the respect to listen to what he had to say and at least go and try it. Cause at the end of the day, at that time, I think I was a 28 year old or 20, maybe less. 
I didn't know my ass from a hole in the ground. And I just was like, okay, I'm going to do whatever they, I'm going to try whatever they tell me, you know, to do. And sometimes it worked and so, you know, some things legit, you know, weren't because he wasn't in my industry. Yeah. But, and, and that's normal, uh, right? Like, sure. I, I think I, what I've noticed from mentors is this, is um, when they give me an idea, I have to put that in my own pattern recognition based on what I'm doing. And so I've collected patterns. We all have since the day we enter this world. And my patterns uh, relate to my business. And so I know all these other patterns. And so when they give me a piece of advice, I have to take that advice and fit it into the puzzle and, and apply that advice to everything that already exists. And I want to use that advice. But if I use it too literally when I get advice, it, it might fail. It could be a problem. And so when you use that piece of advice and it doesn't go perfectly, it doesn't mean it's bad. You've got to continue to kind of evolve that within what you're doing. And I think what a lot of people, particularly young entrepreneurs, I really noticed this and, and certainly myself, I've been through this and I still make mistakes like this all the time. I take advice and then I apply it a little bit and it doesn't necessarily work perfectly the first time, but I don't throw it away. That's a pattern that I need to keep in my toolbox. And now I, I need to blend it in with some other things differently. It's just a recipe. And once I take all of those patterns and I figure out the right recipe, then I'm going to kick ass. That's so perfectly said. That is way better said than what I was saying. Like that is exactly true. Uh, oh, thank you for that. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you being with us. If you found value in the show and know a friend or a coworker who could benefit from the conversation, please share the link via text or on social media. Remember, each share creates a ripple effect of knowledge and inspiration. We'll see you next week. The views, information, or opinions expressed by guests during the Business of Doing Business podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Dwayne Kerrigan and his affiliates. Dwayne Kerrigan or the Business of Doing Business podcast is not responsible for and does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. Listeners are advised to consult with a qualified professional or specialist before making any decisions based on the content of this podcast.